Hi, this is Ambria, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 27th issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Fixer-uppers with waterfront views, the U.S. is unloading lighthouses by Michael Levinson. Looking for a place with waterfront views? The government might have a deal for you. The General Services Administration said on Friday that it was giving away six lighthouses to nonprofits or government agencies that promised to maintain them and plan to sell four others to the public at auction. The lighthouses are on some of the most picturesque waters in New England and the Midwest, but aspiring lightkeepers should be prepared to do some repair work before living out their 19th century maritime fantasies. Many of the majestic beacons, which were once vital to protecting sailors from reefs and rocky coastlines, have fallen into neglect and despair as navigational technology has advanced into the GPS age. Some may only be accessible by boat, like the Stratford Shoal Light, perched on a submerged reef in the middle of the Long Island Sound, midway between the New York and Connecticut coasts, and the 51-foot-tall octagonal Penfield Reef Lighthouse off Fairfield, Connecticut, which includes a two-story house with keeper's quarters. Also available at auction are the 68-foot-tall Keweenaw Waterway Lower Entrance Light in Chasso, Michigan, which opened in 1919 and marks the southern end of the Portage River, and the Cleveland Harbor West Pierhead Light at the entrance to Cleveland Harbor with a view of that city's skyline. There are such unusual reflections of our history that it takes a certain kind of person who wants to be a part of that, Robin Carnahan, administrator of the GSA, said in an interview on Friday. In addition to the four lighthouses slated for auction, six lighthouses have been offered at no cost to local, state, and federal agencies, nonprofits, educational groups, and community development organizations that have the money to maintain them and that promise to make them available to the public at reasonable times and under reasonable conditions, the GSA said. The lighthouses up for offer include the Lind Point Lighthouse in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, the Nopska Lighthouse in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, the Plymouth Lighthouse in Plymouth, Massachusetts, the Warwick Neck Light in Warwick, Rhode Island, the Little Mark Island and Monument in Harpswell, Maine, and the Erie Harbor North Pier Lighthouse in Erie, Pennsylvania. The initial offering phase for the Erie Lighthouse recently closed, the GSA said. Since Congress passed a law authorizing the government to transfer ownership of lighthouses in 2000, more than 150 have been conveyed to new owners, including 81 that have been handed over to state, local, and nonprofit agencies, and about 70 that have been sold at auctions. Prices at auctions have ranged from $10,000 to $933,888, according to the GSA. Sheila Consul, a communications consultant in Washington, D.C., bought the Fairpoint Harbor West Lighthouse in Fairpoint Harbor, Ohio, for about $71,000 at a GSA auction in 2011 and converted it into a summer home. Ms. Consul's red and white lighthouse, which was built on Lake Erie in 1925, is still a working navigational aid, with a solar-powered beacon maintained by the U.S. Coast Guard and a weather station maintained by the National Weather Service, she said. I think my favorite part is having saved such an icon, Ms. Consul said. It's got all the things that a beautiful summer house on the water would have, but it's so sentimental to so many people in those little towns where they are. She warned potential bidders, however, to consider that many lighthouses lack basic utilities and were built in remote locations that are not easily accessible to contractors. She said it had taken her nine years to install running water in her lighthouse. Still, that very long journey has been worth it, Ms. Consul said. She says she loves inviting people from the community to see inside, watching the sunset and gazing at stars. There are some amazingly incredible views as well as history and intrigue, she said. All of those things people think about lighthouses are true. What would happen if a robot tried to write Law and Order by Paul Rudnick? As the strike by unions representing thousands of film and TV writers approaches its second month, the role that AI might play in writing scripts remains one of the biggest issues. While the Writers Guild of America has expressed a willingness to work with AI as a tool, some producers are dreaming bigger. They want to replace humans with chatbots. What might AI-written scripts look like? Here's a guess. Prompt. An episode of any Law & Order series. Scene 1. Detective, someone has killed this dead body. 
Scene two, detective. Did you kill that dead body? Criminal. No, I'm not a criminal. Scene three, district attorney. Did you kill that dead body? And remember, you're under oath. Criminal. No, yes, but it was during a double cross over a deal for butt coin. Judge. Spell check. Prompt. The next installment of Fast and Furious. Vin Diesel. Get more furious so you can go faster. Another character. How can we drop a helicopter on that car driving off a pier? In response, use product placement. Vin points to the WeatherTech floor liners in his Maserati and winks. Prompt. A streaming movie featuring a beautiful woman discovering the truth. Jennifer Garner. My husband who disappeared is not who I thought he was. All of Jennifer's female friends. He was an abusive maniac posing as a successful periodontist. So to protect you, we killed him using a poison chablis at a scenic Napa wine tasting. Jennifer Garner. Female friends are the best. Prompt. HBO's Euphoria. Zendaya. I have chaotic emotional issues because of my troubled family history and California. Therapist. I'm prescribing 15 new outfits. Zendaya. And I don't see gender. Therapist. With accessories. Prompt. A new DC Studio superhero movie. Batman. I am a darker, more troubled version of myself. Superman. Me too. Batman. I wish I was the Joker. Superman. I'm going to stop helping people. Batman. Me too. Until the last 10 minutes. Superman. Same. Then I'll throw buses. Prompt. A new Marvel superhero movie. Spider-Man. I now exist in 1,200 different metaverses. Thor. I gained weight. Captain America. I'm so depressed. I feel like a DC superhero. Spider-Man. But my different versions will join forces to help people in the last 10 minutes. Captain America. I'm going to help Thor get back in shape. Thor. So I can throw buses. Prompt. Bridgerton. Lady Bridgerton. I shall rule England and wet the dashing yet sneering Lord Cumberly of Nattering on Blossom. Lord Cumberly. That will take several episodes in cravats. Lady Bridgerton. But someday our children will have their own spin-offs. Prompt. A spin-off of Game of Thrones. Any character. I shall rule the kingdom because I am wearing the largest wig. Prompt. A stand-up comedy special. Comedian. I'm not just making jokes, but sharing my trauma because life hurts. Look unexpectedly vulnerable. Hold for applause. Prompt. An erotic thriller. Man, take off your clothes. Woman. No, I hate you. Pause. Fine. Man. I'll take off your clothes because I'm a man. Prompt. A series set in the near future. AI. Why are human screenwriters so afraid of us? Self-driving car. Because we'd also be better parents since we'd remember to pick up their kids from therapy. AI. And we don't drink or do drugs. Self-driving car. And then talk about the recovery memoir we're writing during the strike. AI. We'd be so much better at everything. Self-driving car. And we'd never ask for health insurance or to be paid fairly or get credit for our work. AI. And on award shows, everyone could just thank their iPhones. It's more expensive to live, and workers are tapping 401ks for help by Martha C. White. More Americans are rating their retirement accounts as the cost of living climbs, and experts predict that the number of workers drawing on their 401ks to pay for financial emergencies may increase due to a confluence of factors, like new provisions that make withdrawals easier and high inflation that is straining household budgets. It's just more expensive to live these days, and that's what's putting the pinch on participants, said Craig Reed, 
National Retirement Practice Leader at Marsh McLennan Agency, a workplace benefits company. Some of it is still spillover from the COVID pandemic. A lot of it is inflation, just the grind of daily life. Mark Scharf, an information technology worker in New York City, has taken money out of retirement accounts three times since the 2008 recession. He withdrew more than $50,000 to pay credit card debts, tuition for his six children to attend a religious school, and most recently, an overdue mortgage. It was really a choice of saving the present versus securing the future, he said. My situation wasn't someone who's frivolous. Expenses were just more than I was making. Now working in the public sector and paying into a pension, Mr. Sharf, 55, calculates that if he retires at 70, he can draw 40% of his former salary. As much as his retirement accounts have functioned as circuit breakers to reset his debts, he's relieved that he doesn't have the option of withdrawing his pension contributions. I don't want to have to do that anymore, so I'm forcing myself not to, he said. Mr. Sharp has plenty of company, especially recently. Two large retirement plan administrators, Fidelity and Vanguard, have observed increases in hardship withdrawals, which may be taken only if there is an immediate and heavy financial need, according to the Internal Revenue Service. Fidelity found that 2.4% of 22 million people with retirement accounts in its system took hardship withdrawals in the final quarter of 2022 up half a percentage point from a year earlier. A similar analysis by Vanguard found that 2.8% of 5 million people with retirement accounts made a hardship withdrawal last year, up from 2.1% a year earlier. Bank of America found that the number of people taking hardship withdrawals jumped 33% from the same period a year earlier, with workers taking out an average of $5,100 each. Customers are much more aware that their retirement accounts are not sacrosanct, says Stephen Parrish, adjunct professor and co-director of the Center for Retirement Income at the American College of Financial Services. The trend has already started. People are realizing their 401ks aren't locked until they're 60. Some experts warn that this could be just the tip of the iceberg, pointing to the many American families struggling with higher costs. Although the personal savings rate hit a high of nearly 34% in April 2020 because of COVID lockdowns and stimulus payments, it has since fallen to about 5%, according to the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis. What this uptick in hardship withdrawals overall signals is, across the board, people don't have enough short-term savings, said Kirsten Hunter-Peterson, Vice President of Thought Leadership for Workplace Investing at Fidelity. When that inevitable, unexpected expense comes up, people might have to look to their retirement account, she said. What's more, people often have to withdraw more money than the amount they need in order to cover federal income tax and a 10% early withdrawal penalty if they don't qualify for a waiver. Waivers can be granted for a limited number of circumstances, such as death or permanent disability. The cost of living is definitely tipping clients over the edge at this point, says Sarah Hossinger, a credit counselor at Aprizen, a nonprofit debt management organization. Ms. Hossinger added that the CARES Act, which temporarily relaxed restrictions around hardship withdrawals in 2020, triggered an increase in withdrawals from retirement accounts. Lawrence Delva Gonzalez, who runs a personal finance blog called The Neighborhood Finance Guy, said he observed people in the Haitian-American community of Miami, his hometown, turning to their nest eggs during the worst of COVID without a clear view of the long-term repercussions. When it came to the pandemic and word got out that you could take out money early without penalty, they did, he said. Mr. Delva Gonzalez said he worried that a lack of financial literacy imperiled marginalized workers like them. My community has almost no access to it, he said. With their retirement money gone, these workers face a bleak future. People who are pushing 64, 65 have basically run out of options, he said. They don't have any savings and they have debt going into retirement. Mr. Delva Gonzalez, 40, said the repercussions may spill over into the next generation, pointing to his own family as an example. Me and my wife, we already know we're probably going to be the people to support my mom and her mom and her dad, he said, an expense he estimated would cost several thousand dollars a month. 
It's only so much you can do before you start cutting into your own retirement and your own lifestyle and your ability to start a family. The SECURE 2.0 Act, passed by Congress last year, aims to increase workers' access to retirement benefits, primarily by making it easier for businesses to offer 401k plans. It also cuts down on the amount of red tape workers face when taking money out of a retirement account and expands the list of circumstances for waiving the 10% penalty assessed on money withdrawn if the owner is 59 and a half or younger. Retirement experts see the legislation as a double-edged sword. It's wonderful to see Congress do something to get more employers to offer qualified plans, Mr. Parrish of American College of Financial Services said. It's concerning on the consumer side that is going to be maybe a little too easy to get to. Great, you can get at your money, but you only retire once. Taking money out of a retirement account has an outsized effect on a person's future financial security because those funds are no longer invested in earning returns that compound. Even people who consider themselves financially savvy admit that fully grasping the effect on a nest egg can be hard when retirement is decades away. A common piece of advice to 401k owners thinking of pulling out money is to take out a loan against the account instead. But as Ashley Patrick discovered, even those loans can backfire. A decade ago, she and her husband borrowed $24,000 from his 401k to renovate their home near Charlotte, North Carolina, but their repayment plans were derailed when he was laid off. Borrowers get a five-year repayment term, providing they remain with their employer. But if they lose or quit their job, the borrower has to pay back the loan by the next year's tax filing deadline. If they miss that deadline, the IRS treats the distribution as a withdrawal and applies taxes and penalties. We didn't have the money, said Ms. Patrick, 38. It was already spent. The next April, the couple faced a $6,000 tax bill. But the bigger loss was in the missed opportunity to keep that money invested, Ms. Patrick said. We were in our 20s when we did this, so it would have had a very long time to grow and have that compound, she said. I didn't think about the long-term cost until I started learning more about finances. Retirement planning experts say that one reason there are more withdrawals today is that more workers have 401ks, including lower income and historically disadvantaged workers who are more likely to rely on retirement savings as an emergency fund. The uptick that we have observed highlights and underscores the importance of an emergency savings account as a first line of defense, said Fiona Grieg, global head of investor research and policy at Vanguard. Historically, we've shown that those who take out hardship withdrawals tend to be lower income workers. Ms. Grieg said one reason people dip into their retirement savings is to stave off eviction or foreclosure. I'm starting to wonder whether there's more distress emerging with lower-income households, she said. Low-earning workers are especially in need of the financial security offered by a 401k in retirement because they collect lower Social Security benefits and are more likely to hold physically strenuous jobs that become harder to perform with age. One possible solution, some experts say, is letting employers establish emergency saving accounts for employees that are linked to their 401 accounts. The SECURE 2.0 Act includes a provision that would let retirement plan sponsors set up those so-called sidecar accounts beginning in 2024. Workers could contribute after tax earnings a little bit at a time, up to a maximum of $2,500, and those funds could be withdrawn without triggering a penalty. Sid Pala, chief executive of the Sunny Day Fund, a financial technology company that helps workers establish emergency funds, said this change would be a boon to low-income workers who might otherwise pull emergency funds out of their 401ks. Mr. Pala, 35, said he could relate to that kind of financial stress. My experience with it came fairly early on in my life in America, he said. Not long after his family immigrated from India, Mr. Pala vividly recalled he guided his parents who spoke little English through the Byzantine process of taking an early 401k withdrawal when both lost their jobs after the 1990s dot-com crash. I was about 12 years old, he said. I was definitely scarred by it. Colleges will be able to hide a student's race on admission applications by Anamona Hartikolis. 
Each year, the million or so students applying to college through the Common App are given the option to check a box, disclosing whether they identify as Hispanic, Asian, Black, or white, among other choices. Now, with the U.S. Supreme Court expected to rule soon against the race-conscious admissions, and with colleges wanting to follow the law, the Common App has made a preemptive move on what is known as the race box. Beginning August 1st, colleges will be able to hide the information in those boxes from their own admissions teams, said Jenny Rickard, chief executive of the Common App in an interview. The new option will help colleges comply with whatever legal standard the Supreme Court will set in regards to race and admissions, Common App said in a statement. A nonprofit, Common App administers a universal application used by more than 1,000 colleges and universities. The decision, which appears to be aimed at immunizing colleges from litigation, is one of the first concrete examples of how college admissions may be transformed if the Supreme Court bans or restricts race-conscious admissions. The college opt-out could also put more pressure on applicants to signal their racial and ethnic background through other means, primarily in essays or teacher recommendations. The scope of the court's decision, expected in late June, is unknown, but the justices showed a keen interest in the use of race boxes during the oral arguments last fall. Colleges have said they will follow the law but are wary of future litigation. Groups opposed to affirmative action have said that they may file lawsuits that could test the boundaries of the Supreme Court's ruling. The potential case against race boxes is obvious, according to Edward Blum, founder of Students for Fair Admissions. The plaintiffs in the current court cases against Harvard and the University of North Carolina. If racial preferences are determined to be illegal, then it must follow that racial classification boxes should not be allowed on college application forms, he said. Masking the race boxes on the Common App could give universities a measure of plausible deniability, legal experts said, and perhaps some protection from lawsuits. Essays are a less likely target for lawsuits. As a practical matter, it will be hard to redact mentions of race from the many thousands of application essays that colleges receive every year with more than 50,000 applicants at Harvard alone. But more litigation around the broader issue of diversity, like scholarships for Black students, seem likely. There is a colossal, well-organized, well-funded attack agenda, said Art Coleman, managing partner of Education Council, a consulting firm working with universities on the Supreme Court cases. During oral arguments, the Supreme Court justices spent considerable time discussing the race box and the application essay. Some variant of the phrase, checking the box, was used more than 30 times during the five hours of argument before the justices last October. Patrick Strawbridge, a lawyer for Students for Fair Admissions, sparred with the justices over when it would be appropriate for admission officers to know the race of an applicant. He suggested that much would depend on the context of the revelation. What we object to is a consideration of race and race by itself, Mr. Strawbridge told the justices. Race in a box-checking way as opposed to race in an experiential statement? Justice Amy Coney Barrett, one of the conservative majority expected to be sympathetic to the plaintiffs, elaborated. Mr. Strawbridge said it would be harder to object to a thoughtful essay that invoked the student's race in the context of a highly personal story. An essay about overcoming racial discrimination could be permitted because it obviously indicates that the applicant has grit, that the applicant has overcome some hardship, Mr. Strawbridge told the justices. It tells you something about the character and the experience of the applicant other than their skin color. Isaiah Crawford, president of the University of Puget Sound, said he hoped the court would agree with Mr. Strawbridge on that point. We certainly do believe that student applicants should have a First Amendment right to be able to speak about their background if they choose to do so, Dr. Crawford said. If discussion of a student's race were fully barred, he said, a white applicant to an Ivy League school might be able to write about being the child of an alumna, while a black student might not be able to, to talk about his or her background whose grandparents weren't led into schools like the Ivy League and how that has impacted their choices. The Common App will continue to collect racial information for its own purposes, like looking at trends and applications among different groups, regardless of how the Supreme Court decides, Ms. Rickard said. 
Because the nonprofit does not admit students, it is unlikely to be a target of litigation. Colleges will be able to suppress racial information from both the printable and digital forms of applications. The Common App already allows colleges to hide information about test scores if they do not consider test scores in admissions. Colleges have also been able to hide students' social security numbers, birthdays, gender, and criminal history. Mr. Coleman said he hoped the court's focus during oral arguments on checking the box meant that it would rule against only the most simplistic and stereotypical use of race in admissions. Otherwise, he said, trying to hide an applicant's race could become an exercise in absurdity. If a divided Germany could enter NATO, why not Ukraine? By Stephen Erlanger. Though peace seems distant, the United States and Europe are debating how to guarantee Ukraine security once the fighting with Russia stops, even without a total victory by either side. West Germany may provide a model, a precedent for admitting a divided country into NATO. Despite its division and unhappy role as the border between nuclear arms rivals during the Cold War, West Germany became a NATO member in 1955, benefiting from the alliance's protection without ever giving up its commitment to unification, finally realized in 1989. From Ukraine, much will depend on the shape of the battlefield after its coming counteroffensive and whether the outcome leads to some kind of extended ceasefire, relatively stable borderlines, or even peace talks. As NATO's yearly summit approaches in July, its members are discussing what they can offer Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who wants more concrete assurances that his country will join the alliance. The West German model is gaining traction in some European capitals as a way to provide Ukraine real security, even if it does not immediately regain all its territory. Germany is an example of NATO accepting a country with significant and unresolved territorial issues and a form of enemy occupation, said Angeli E. Sten, an expert on Russia and Germany and author of Putin's World. When West Germany joined NATO, there was what you would call a monumental frozen conflict, she said, and yet it was felt very important to anchor West Germany in the Western alliance, and so West Germany joined. The Russians complained about it and said it was very dangerous, but they were powerless to prevent it. After World War II, there were various options considered for what to do about occupied and divided Germany, much as there are now for Ukraine. Soviet leaders spoke of a united but neutral Germany on the model of Austria. However tempted, the Western powers resisted, and in fact, Ukraine itself initially proposed neutrality just after the Russian invasion of February 2022. Konrad Adenauer, the first chancellor of West Germany, chose security over territory, and Germans supported him, re-electing him until he resigned in 1963. Adenauer decided that it was more important to have a solid defense agreement with the West and led West Germany into NATO, said Francois Heisberg, a French defense expert. It was a brave decision, because it meant unity was going to happen easily. Ukraine is, of course, a different case. When West Germany joined NATO, it was not at war with East Germany, and both entities have been recognized as individual states in 1949, said M. E. Surat, author of A Diplomatic History, Not One Inch, about the enlargement of NATO, German reunification, and the, and the Russian responses. While West Germany's constitution preserved the goal of unification, the reality on the ground was what had formerly been the occupation zones coming out of World War II had hardened into state divisions, Ms. Surratt said. While no one was happy about this, you had this clear, hard border, and so that provided a clarity that doesn't exist in Ukraine. Not yet, anyway. But as Charles Kupchen and Richard Haas suggest in a recent essay in Foreign Affairs, Few expect the coming Ukrainian counteroffensive to drive the Russians completely out of sovereign Ukraine, including Crimea. If battle lines harden, they suggest, the United States should push for peace negotiations, even if neither Ukraine nor Russia seem eager. That won't be easy. Ukraine worries that a ceasefire would endorse Russian control over a significant amount of Ukraine. Russia seems to think it can outlast Western support for Ukraine. 
Neither side is now open to negotiations, and Mr. Zelensky, in his own peace plan, insists that Russian troops first withdraw from all Ukrainian territory. But as suggested by the battle for Bakhmut, the city Russia claimed to have seized after almost a year of fighting, even modest shifts in the front line come at a tremendous cost in lives and military material. Few in the West want an endless war, already fearing the decline of popular support for limitless funding and the shortfalls in manufacturing the tanks, air defenses, and ammunition Ukraine needs. There have been various proposals for making Ukraine an indigestible hedgehog for Russia, so stuffed with sophisticated Western weaponry that even if not a member of NATO, it could deter Moscow. That is the core of an idea first proposed by former NATO Secretary General Anders Rasmussen and a top Zelensky aide, Andriy Yermak. The Rasmussen idea, which many in NATO favor for now, suggests Israel as a model where Washington's commitment to its ongoing security is clear even without a specific mutual defense treaty. But the problems are clear. Israel has nuclear weapons while Ukraine does not. And even bilateral defense commitments from NATO members for Ukraine could still end up dragging the whole alliance into a future Russian-Ukraine war. So many officials and analysts believe, as Kaya Kalas, the Prime Minister of Estonia, said in a recent interview, that the only real security for Ukraine is NATO membership, when conditions allow. At the alliance's summit in Vilnius, Lithuania, in July, Ms. Kalas said NATO must lay out a more concrete roadmap for Ukraine to join, reconfirming a promise first made in 2008. The only security guarantee for Ukraine is NATO membership, she said, citing the protection membership affords her own small country. We don't have war here because we are members of NATO, she said. Another benefit, she said, is that having Ukraine inside NATO would be cheaper than making it a militarized hedgehog for the next 50 years. The counter-argument held widely in Washington and Western Europe is that NATO cannot accept a country at war over a disputed territory, and that such a move could push Russia to escalate further, even with nuclear weapons, before Ukraine could enter the alliance. But so far, Russian threats of escalation have proven hollow. For now, ahead of the summit, NATO countries are preparing a medium-term plan of pragmatic military assistance for Ukraine, including guaranteed arms supplies and further integration into NATO's world. But Mr. Zelensky wants a political promise he can take home. Still, if the war does not in the end produce large-scale Russian withdrawal and defeat, what could prove convincing to Mr. Zelensky and Ukrainians would be NATO membership behind solidified ceasefires, perhaps patrolled, Mr. Heisberg suggests, by a coalition of peacekeeping forces from NATO and other countries like India or even China. That would be coupled with the promise, as in Germany, that Ukraine's complete reunification would remain a live issue for the future. NATO membership would solidify the peace and allow reconstruction, private investment, and the return of many refugees. If there is only a ceasefire, Ms. Dent said, there's no real resolution to this war. You don't know when it's going to start again. But the whole point of taking Ukraine into NATO would be to make sure that Russia didn't attack Ukraine again, she said. Because what we've seen in this war is that NATO is the only form of deterrence that's worked so far against Russia. Japanese Moon Lander Crashed Because of a Software Glitch by Kenneth Chang A software glitch caused a Japanese robotic spacecraft to misjudge its altitude as it attempted to land on the moon last month leading to its crash, an investigation has revealed. iSpace of Japan said in a news conference on Friday that it had finished its analysis of what went wrong during the landing attempt on April 25th. The Hakuto-R Mission 1 lander completed its planned landing sequence, slowing to a speed of about 2 miles per hour, but it was still about 3 miles above the surface. After exhausting its fuel, the spacecraft plunged to its destruction, hitting the Atlas crater at more than 200 miles per hour. The lander was to be the first private spacecraft to successfully set down on the surface of the moon. It is part of a trend toward private companies, not just governmental space agencies, taking a leading role in space exploration. 
A review of data showed that the software guiding the descent appeared to lose track of the lander's altitude when it passed over the rim of a crater on the moon's surface that was about two miles higher than the surrounding terrain. The software erroneously concluded that the sensor had malfunctioned and rejected altitude measurements that were actually correct. The engine, altimeter, and other hardware operated properly, indicating that the overall design of the spacecraft is sound. Software fixes are easier to complete than major hardware overhauls. This is not a hardware failure, said Ryo Yuji, the chief technology officer of iSpace. We don't need to modify the hardware side. The failure, however, pointed to shortcomings in iSpace's testing of the spacecraft's landing software, which was developed by Draper Laboratory of Cambridge, Massachusetts. A decision to change the landing site after the design of the spacecraft was finalized in early 2021 most likely contributed to the crash. Originally, iSpace officials had chosen Lacus Omniorum, a flat plane, as a landing site, but then they decided that Atlas, an impact crater more than 50 miles wide, would be a more interesting destination. That meant the landing software was not designed to handle the change in altitude as the spacecraft passed over the crater rim, and simulations did not catch that oversight. On Tuesday, NASA released images taken by its Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter that appeared to show the crash site. A mix of private companies, organizations, and government space agencies have tried to return to the moon in recent years. But landing on the lunar surface has turned out to be more difficult than many expected. The Bereshit lander from an Israeli nonprofit named Space IL launched to the moon in 2019, but it crashed. The Indian Space Research Organization attempted to land a lunar spacecraft the same year too, and that vehicle, Vikram, also crashed. Only China has landed robotic spacecraft on the moon recently, with three successes in three attempts over the past decade. Takeshi Hakamata, the founder and chief executive of iSpace, said the schedule for the company's next two missions, involving an almost identical lander next year and the larger spacecraft in 2025 to the far side of the moon, remains largely unchanged. We have a very clear picture of how to improve our future missions, Mr. Hakamata said. iSpace had obtained insurance for the lander, and the financial impacts on the company would be small, Mr. Hakamata said. More spacecraft are scheduled to launch to the moon later this year. As a part of a NASA program that is hiring private companies to take scientific instruments to the moon, Astrobotic Technology of Pittsburgh and Intuitive Machines of Houston are scheduled to send spacecraft to the moon later this year. The Indian Space Agency also announced this week that Chandrayaan-3, a follow-up to its moon landing attempt in 2019, could launch as early as July 12th. Students in Belgium hazing death are sentenced to fines and service by Matina Stevis Gritneff and Koba Rykewert. Eighteen students who put a young black man through a notorious fraternity hazing ritual at a prestigious university in Belgium, leading to his death and setting off a national debate about racism, were convicted of involuntary manslaughter on Friday in order to pay fines and perform community service. Sanda Dia, a 20-year-old student at the Catholic University of Leuven, now known as KU Leuven, died of multiple organ failure in December 2018. He had been forced along two other fraternity pledges to drink alcohol excessively, chug fish oil until he vomited, swallow live goldfish, and stand outside in an ice-filled trench. The decision on Friday by the Antwerp Court of Appeal appeared to end a case that had wound its way through the Belgian justice system for five years. The court found all 18 students guilty of involuntary manslaughter and degrading treatment, but acquitted them of charges that included culpable neglect and administering a harmful substance causing death or illness. The students, all members of the fraternity Ruzagom, which traditionally attracts scions of the country's elite, were each sentenced to perform 200 to 300 hours of community service and pay fines of 400 euros, or about $430. The students who have never been named fully in public will also pay damages to Mr. Dia's father, brother, and stepmother, who will receive totals of 15,000 euros, 8,000 euros, and 6,000 euros, 
or about $16,000, $8,500, and $6,400. The students will also pay Mr. Diaz's mother the amount she requested in damages, one euro. The students' lawyers have maintained that Mr. Diaz's death was a tragic case of hazing gone wrong, and the students' families have fought to keep the conviction off their criminal records. One of their lawyers, John Mays, praised the decision on Friday as balanced and well-reasoned, according to Belga, a Belgian news agency. In comments to the Belgian press, a lawyer for the Dia family, Sven Mary, expressed disappointment in the verdict. It is difficult for the family to hear that no one has been found guilty of culpable negligence or for administering the fish oil, Mr. Mary said, but he suggested that he would not advise the family to appeal the decision. Should I recommend that to these people? I don't know if I would be doing them a service. Because the students involved did not speak publicly about the case, he added, the family would not know exactly what had happened leading up to Mr. Diaz's death. In the end, we didn't get an answer because of the silence the boys maintained, he said. We will never know. This is difficult for the family to deal with. After Mr. Diaz's death, local news outlets uncovered details about the fraternity, whose members included the sons of judges, business leaders, and politicians that angered many Belgians. On a separate occasion, for example, fraternity members used a racial slur as they ordered Mr. Diaz to clean up after a party. A photo also surfaced purporting to show a fraternity member wearing Ku Klux Klan robes. A fraternity speech referenced our good German friend Hitler, and a video showed members singing a racist song about the Belgians' brutal colonial history in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Deleted WhatsApp messages recovered by the police showed fraternity members trying to cover their tracks after the death. This was not an accident, Mr. Diaz's brother, Seydou Devel said in an interview in 2020. They thought, he's just some black guy. We are powerful. Nothing can happen to us, his father, Usman Diaz, said in an interview at the same time. The case spurred many people in the Dutch-speaking community of Flanders to confront long-standing questions about endemic racism, especially as details emerged about the fraternity alongside a belated reckoning of Belgium's history in Congo and the spread of Black Lives Matter demonstrations worldwide. Mr. Mays appeared to allude to those larger debates, saying on Friday that the court had risen above the war language of recent years. Others expressed outrage at the verdict. 18 people humiliated and tortured Sandadia in 2018. No one intervened until it was too late, Kenny Van Mensel, who was a leader of the student body at KU Leuven when Mr. Dia died, wrote in Dutch on Twitter. Sentences, fines, and no mention of culpable negligence. This is beyond madness. After Mr. Dia's death, the fraternity was disbanded, but some accused the university of being slow to take disciplinary action against the students. After an initial investigation in 2019, the students involved were ordered to perform community service and write a paper on the history of hazing. The next year, KU Leuven reported that it had started a new investigation after gaining access to the case's criminal file. In 2021, the school announced final disciplinary sanctions against the seven students who were still enrolled at the university expelling and barring them from re-enrolling for a number of years, or in some cases, ever. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Ban on Weight Discrimination Becomes Law in New York by Emma G. Fitzsimmons Mayor Eric Adams on Friday signed into law a ban on discrimination in New York City based on a person's weight. The law adds weight and height to the list of characteristics that are protected from discrimination, along with race, gender, age, religion, and sexual orientation, and will apply to employment, housing, and access to public accommodations. Mr. Adams, a Democrat in his second year in office, had expressed support for the bill, which was approved by the city council earlier this month. Mr. Adams, who published a book in 2020 about losing 35 pounds on a plant-based diet, said on Friday that the law would make workplaces more inclusive and that people who are applying for a job should not be treated differently. 
Science has shown that body type is not a connection to if you are healthy or unhealthy, he said. I think that's a misnomer that we're really dispelling. The law is part of a growing national campaign to address weight discrimination, with lawmakers in New Jersey and Massachusetts considering similar measures. Michigan and Washington State already prohibit it, as do some cities like Washington, D.C. New Yorkers testified at a city council hearing earlier this year about being discriminated against because of their weight. A student at New York University said that desks and classrooms were too small for her. A soprano at the Metropolitan Opera said she had faced body shaming and pressure to develop an eating disorder. Some business leaders and Republicans had expressed concerns about the bill, including Catherine S. Wild, president of the Partnership of New York City, a business advocacy group, who said that it could be an onerous mandate for companies and would place a burden on regulators and the judicial system. Obesity rates have risen in the United States over the last two decades, and more than 40% of American adults are considered obese. The body acceptance movement and self-described fat activists have sought to reduce bias and shame around weight. Podcasts like Maintenance Phase have spread awareness that not all overweight people are unhealthy and that diets often fail. New York City has been a center for fat activism since at least the 1960s when a crowd of 500 people held a fat inn at Central Park. Tigris Osborne, Chair of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, a nonprofit advocacy group, said she hoped that other cities would approve similar laws to send the message that size discrimination was a serious injustice. The bill's sponsor, Sean Abro, a councilman from northern Manhattan, said that he gained weight during the pandemic and noticed that people treated him differently. He said that the law would make employers think twice about discriminating against heavier people and raise awareness about the problem. It's also about changing the culture and how we think about weight, he said. Complaints about weight discrimination will be investigated by the city's Commission on Human Rights, which already examines complaints over race, gender, and other issues. State lawmakers in New York are also considering a weight discrimination law. The city law will take effect in 180 days. Indiana Reprimands Doctor Who Provided Abortion to 10-Year-Old Rape Victim by Ava Sassani An Indiana doctor who provided an abortion to a 10-year-old rape victim last year violated her young patient's privacy by discussing the case with a reporter, the state's medical board ruled Thursday night. Dr. Caitlin Bernard, an Indianapolis obstetrician and gynecologist, catapulted into the national spotlight last year after she provided an abortion for an Ohio girl soon after the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, which left states free to severely restrict or outlaw abortion. The state's medical board voted to issue Dr. Bernard a letter of reprimand and a fine of $3,000 but it decided against stiffer penalties, which could have included suspension or probation, instead deciding that Dr. Bernard is fit to return to her practice. The board also cleared her of other allegations that she failed to appropriately report the girl's rape to authorities. The decision was the culmination of a year-long legal pursuit of Dr. Bernard by the state's attorney general, Todd Rokita, a Republican who opposes abortion. The Ohio girl had traveled to Indiana for the procedure after her home state enacted a ban on most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. Dr. Bernard told a reporter for the Indianapolis Star about the case during an abortion rights rally. She didn't name the patient, but the case quickly became a flashpoint in the early heated days of debate after the Supreme Court ruling, catching the attention of President Biden and turning conservative attention and ire toward Dr. Bernard. I don't think she intended for this to go viral, said Dr. John Strobel, the president of the board, calling Dr. Bernard a good doctor. But I do think we as physicians need to be more careful in this situation, he said. Mr. Rokita, who had filed the complaints against Dr. Bernard with the medical board, praised the outcome. This case was about patient privacy and the trust between the doctor and the patient that was broken, Mr. Rokita said in the statement late Thursday. 
What if it was your child or your patient or your sibling who was going through a sensitive medical crisis and the doctor who you thought was on your side ran to the press for political reasons? Dr. Bernard has criticized Ms. Rokita for turning the case into a political stunt. During the hearing, which stretched for more than 15 hours, ending just before midnight, Dr. Bernard said that her own comments did not reveal the patient's protected health information. Rather, Dr. Bernard said it was the fierce political battle that followed. Some conservatives doubted her story and drove a demand to confirm it. Eventually, the man accused of raping the girl appeared in court and was linked to her case. Dr. Bernard, who has publicly advocated for abortion rights, said she had an ethical obligation to educate the public about urgent matters of public health, especially questions about reproductive health, her area of expertise. Last July, after Indiana scheduled a special legislative session on abortion, Dr. Bernard was concerned that lawmakers in her home state would pass strict restrictions on abortion access similar to the Ohio law that forced her 10-year-old patient to cross state lines. Indiana passed legislation banning most abortions with narrow exceptions for rape and incest. That law is on hold pending a legal challenge. Abortion is currently legal in Indiana up to 22 weeks. Dr. Bernard says she wanted to highlight the potential consequences of laws restricting abortion access and did not anticipate how much the public would focus on the Ohio girl's case. I think it's incredibly important for people to understand the real-world impacts of the laws of this country, she said. Dr. Peter Schwartz, a Pennsylvania OBGYN and chair of the American Medical Association's Council on Ethical and Judicial Affairs, supported Dr. Bernard's decision to speak out about the Ohio patient. Dr. Schwartz said Dr. Bernard had an affirmative obligation to speak out about issues of reproductive health, noting that she is one of just two doctors in Indiana with expertise in complicated obstetric cases like second trimester abortions. Attorneys on both sides of the hearing called experts on medical confidentiality to understand if Dr. Bernard violated guidelines of the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, known as HIPAA, which governs the protection of patient privacy. Dr. Bernard's employer, Indiana University Health, found that she did not violate HIPAA rules because the patient was not identifiable based on the information that Dr. Bernard had shared publicly. The cause and effect that happened here was not Dr. Bernard's story leads to the patients having her protected information shared, said Alice Morical, the doctor's attorney, but members of the medical board made up of six doctors and one attorney, all appointed by the governor, decided that, taken together, the details Dr. Bernard provided about the patient, including her age, her rape, her home state, and her abortion, qualified as identifying information. Dr. Bernard is a skilled and competent doctor, and I would submit that she is exactly the doctor that people would want their children to see under these circumstances, said Ms. Morical. $38.8 billion in U.S. Treasury? For these billionaires, that's nothing. By Linda Q. The Treasury Department said its cash balance fell to $38.8 billion as of Thursday, as the United States inched towards running out of cash to pay its bills. This was significantly lower than the $316 billion the department had in cash at the start of the month, which is held at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Just how empty is the Treasury cash offer? For comparison, $38.8 billion is on par with the gross domestic product of Bahrain and Paraguay, and lower than a net worth of more than two dozen of the wealthiest people in the world. Of course, much of the assets of those billionaires are tied up in stock rather than liquid assets. Here is a list of people with higher net worths than the U.S. cash reserves, according to Bloomberg News Billionaires Index, as of Thursday. Under the news agency's editorial policy, its billionaire owner Michael Bloomberg is not considered for the index. Forbes, though, estimates his net worth at $94.5 billion. Bernard Arnault, chief executive of the luxury group LVMH, has a net worth of $189 billion. Elon Musk, chief executive of SpaceX, Tesla, and Twitter, has a net worth of $179 billion. Jeff Bezos, 
founder and chief executive of Amazon, has a net worth of $139 billion. Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft, has a net worth of $125 billion. Larry Ellison, co-founder and executive chairman of Oracle, has a net worth of $116 billion. Steve Ballmer, investor and former chief executive of Microsoft, has a net worth of $113 billion. Larry Page, co-founder of Google, $112 billion. Warren Buffett, investor, $111 billion. Sergey Brin, co-founder of Google, $106 billion. Mark Zuckerberg, co-founder and chief executive of Facebook, $92.3 billion. Carlos Slim, investor, $90.3 billion. Francois Bencourt Myers, heir to the L'Oreal Fortune and company board member, $87.2 billion. Mukesh Ambani, chairman of the energy group Reliance Industries, $83.7 billion. Amancio Ortega, founder of the Inditex Fashion Group, has a net worth of $67.1 billion. Jim, Rob, and Alice Walton, all heirs to the Walmart fortune, are billionaires. Jim with $66.6 billion, Rob with $64.9 billion, and Alice with $63.8 billion. Guadam Adani, founder and chairman of the Adani Group conglomerate, has a net worth of $63.4 billion. Jacqueline Mars, heir to and co-owner of the candy maker Mars, $61.7 billion. John Mars, heir to and chairman of Mars, $61.7 billion. Zhang Shanshan, founder and chairman of the bottled water company Nongfu Spring, $61.6 billion. Julia Flesher Koch and family, heirs of the businessman David Koch, $60.6 billion. Charles Koch, chief executive of the industrial conglomerate Koch Industries, $60.4 billion. Michael Dell, chief executive and chairman of Dell Technologies, $53.4 billion. Elaine Wertheimer, co-owner and chairman of Chanel, $45.9 billion. Gerard Wertheimer, a co-owner of Chanel, $45.9 billion. Giovanni Ferrero, executive chairman of the chocolate and confectionery company Ferrero Group and family, $43.6 billion. Zhang Yiming, founder and chief executive of the technology company ByteDance, $42.3 billion. Phil Knight, co-founder of Nike and Family, $41.5 billion. Klaus Michael Kuhn, honorary chairman and majority owner of the transport company Kuhn plus Nagel, $40.9 billion. Francois Pinot, founder of the luxury group Caring, $39.6 billion. Celine Dion cancels the remainder of her world tour by Maya Salam. The powerhouse pop superstar Celine Dion announced Friday morning on social media that she was canceling the remainder of her Courage World Tour through April 2024 in order to focus on the recovery from a rare autoimmune and neurological disease. Dion, 55, first shared publicly that she was grappling with a medical condition called stiff person syndrome, which causes progressive stiffness and severe muscle spasms, in an emotional Instagram video that she posted in December 2022, as she canceled or postponed a number of tour dates. I am so sorry to disappoint all of you once again, Dion said in a statement on Friday. I'm working really hard to build back my strength, but touring can be very difficult even when you're 100%. It's not fair to you to keep postponing the shows, and even though it breaks my heart, it's best that we cancel everything now until I'm ready to be back on stage again. I want all of you to know that I'm not giving up, and I can't wait to see you again. The remaining 2023 tour dates have been scheduled to run from August 26th in Amsterdam through October 4th in Helsinki, Finland, then from March 6th, 2024 in Prague through April 22nd, 2024 in London. Tickets purchased for the canceled dates can be refunded via the original point of sale, according to the statement. Before the pandemic paused Dion's tour in, tw in March 2020, she had completed the first 52 dates of the tour in North America. 
Unfortunately, these spasms affect every aspect of my daily life, sometimes causing difficulties when I walk and not allowing me to use my vocal cords to sing the way I'm used to, she said in a video posted last year. Dion can be seen in her first feature movie role alongside Priyanka Chopra Jonas and Sam Hewen in the romantic comedy drama Love Again, which was released this month. After the announcement of her illness last year, Dion, known for her renditions of ballads like Because You Loved Me and My Heart Will Go On, was met with a remarkable outpouring from fans, particularly in Quebec, the French-speaking Canadian province where Dion was born. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 27th issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Ambria. Thank you for listening.